Welcome to the SDA Housing Podcast, brought to you by NDIS Property Australia. Before starting this episode, we need to provide a general disclaimer. Information contained in this podcast is general in nature only. It does not take into account the objectives, financial situation or needs of any particular person. You need to consider your financial situation and needs before making any decisions based on the information in this podcast. And you should consider seeking independent and professional advice for your personal circumstances. All right, let's begin. Hello, this is the SDA podcast, a show that explains, highlights, and guides and brings awareness to all things specialist disability accommodation in this ever-changing NDIS world. I am your host, Brendan, and today we have some special guests. We have three independent support workers who are going to share a little bit about their experience with independent support work and working within the NDIS. Today we have Lynn. Say hi, Liz. Hey, how, hey everyone. How are you going? We have Levi. Nice to see you. And we have Darcy. So, guys, well, this is, this is something very special to get three support workers on this podcast. A lot of topics I want to talk to you about today. And... I guess we'll get a bit of background from each of you. So, Liam, can you give me a bit of your background, please? So, I started support work in 2019 while I was studying teaching, and I got into the work because I thought it was quite rewarding. I consider myself a, a bit of an altruist, so I get a lot of a lot of joy for helping others, and that's why I got in the teaching career in the start. And one of my friends was doing support work at the time. He told me about it, and I thought it was a absolute prime opportunity to, you know, uh, work work on my, my teaching skills and then also try to create a, create a small little difference. And I've been doing support work ever since from 2019. I think like why I wanted to become a teacher is because you hone your attention, you, you take, you know, a class of 30 kids and you try to c- create those light bulb moments where you create a difference in maybe even one of one of those students' lives, but in support work, it's it's very rewarding because you hone your attention on one individual at a time. And now I'm working as a teacher, and I'm also doing support work. Wow! Brandon. Wow! So you're actually doing two jobs at the moment. That's pretty unheard of in the NDI sector, especially a teacher as well. Wow! I see that that is absolutely amazing. You know, we do see a lot of you know student nurses and, and paramedics industry. And I think it, it comes from the healthcare side of things. Like disability and healthcare are very much online. So thank you for that. And of course, Levi, can you give us a bit of your background information? Yep. So I've always been someone who wants to care for people. I uh, My life goal is to always be a police officer. So Ever since I was young, I've just wanted to help people. And I thought a good pathway into getting to that would be uh, disability support, which I heard from a friend. I wanted something that's flexible, as in 2018, when I started doing support work, I found out I was having a baby and I needed something that was going to be flexible for me to be able to work lots of hours that paid well, but also gave me the flexibility to be at home. Doing support work, I've really loved over the last five years, you know, lots of flexibility, good pay for the amount of hours that we work. 
and really fulfilling and doing something that I feel like I can make a difference in someone's life. So were you working with a provider before becoming independent? Yeah. So I, I started off working for a company and decided to make the move over to independent support work as I felt that it gave me more flexibility, gave me the ability to work less hours, but on a higher wage. And it also helped clients as well. So I, I brought a client along with me into independent from working for a company. You know, it allowed them to be able to use their funding more wisely as well because they got to pay me less than what they would pay for, uh, pay for a provider. And then I got more money at the end of it as well. So it was something that was really a win-win situation and something that I recommend for a lot of other participants. Wow. Thank you, Rimo. That's really encouraging. I guess the the space in general, we're seeing a lot of NDIS participants go down the path of independent support workers. And, you know, there are various reasons. What I want to know from you guys is what we deal with, we deal with participants in the SDA space, the home and living area of the NDIS. And a lot of participants here who are independent really struggle because when they're moving into an SDA environment, especially in like an apartment complex or a group home complex, there is the, the on-site cell provider. And a lot of the times the cell provider really struggles with accepting participants who have independent support workers. Can you guys give me some knowledge or experience around what it's like working alongside a SIL provider versus an independent support worker and what some of those challenges are? Levi? Uh, I find that, in my experience, we've worked alongside SIL providers before and it can be quite challenging to, to work alongside in terms of they have quite a lot of rules and regulations, whereas as an independent support worker, there isn't really per se rules. It's more just what the client wants. So I find that working alongside them means that you're having to always compromise sort of the client's wants and needs to be able to suit the SIL provider's expectations. And sometimes that can be a bit challenging, as well as experience and things like that as well, that sometimes a SIL provider might have people with different loads of experience. They could be fresh off the bat and, and that can be challenging to work alongside if, you, if you're an independent support worker that's never worked alongside a SIL, trying to manage the differences between the two. I guess the other challenge too is if a SIL provider who is in a new type model of SDA funding they've never provided for in the past, they, they're, still, they're also learning the new... They're learning a whole new set of challenges too, and that can be pretty, you know, pretty vigorous on them. Liam, can you can you say your? Oh uh, yeah, thank you, Brendan. Um, rather than repeating what some of the boys have said, I'd like to touch on some key moments and highlights of being an independent support worker rather than working as a SIL provider for a SIL provider. Um, the boys said we were a lot more flexible, and I couldn't agree more with that. I've taken a client and he's been along the beach, something that would be very, very hard to get approved up because, you know, there wasn't any mats down and it would have been a, a whole lot of paperwork if you're working for a company. We were able to be flexible and get a few strong boys in and make it happen and have a plan of attack to make sure that it's safe and that 
the safety isn't compromised of the client. Another another thing I like to highlight is when I worked for a SIL provider, it was really hard to take clients in my car without strenuous paperwork. Now, for me, all I needed to do was to get on my, on my insurance company and then just let them know that there is going to be occasionally clients that need to transport and then they were able to write them into the insurance policy. Rather than when I went work for a SIL provider, there was so much paperwork involved as they were, they were very worried about their, their own their own back and maybe getting in trouble and they were just trying to cross every every T and I and they were they were, they weren't really concerned too much about the the client's um, choice and control. I that's personally how I felt and they were more really concerned about their their safety protocols. So I feel like for me transporting clients in my car is, has been so so much easier process now and I've been able to do a lot more being able to take clients out and really develop their skills out in the community yeah because what we know is transport is a really hot topic at the moment it's in in the ndis a lot of ndis participants don't get a lot of transport funding the ndis the ndia don't see that as you know you know a high priority but from a participant point of view i guess yeah if you live in a remote remote area or not close to public transport, you you're always going to have that issue of finding close, accessible public transport and reliable public transport too. Looking back on your time as an independent support worker, now we see participants who are applying for SCA in home and living and a lot of those participants have had to go down the path of appealing the process and be going to the AAT. What has been your experiences with participants who have appealed home and living decisions? And sometimes those appeals can be quite lengthy and quite challenging for everyone involved not just the participant. So I want to get your thoughts as a support worker, what it's like for you guys. Well, well, thank you, Brendan. I'd love to touch on the fact that I'm in quite a numerous amount of uh, Facebook groups and we've seen a lot, of, a lot of different posts about people being impacted by the AAT process and the appeals process in general, Well, as well as having seen firsthand the detrimental repercussions that it has to clients appealing appealing decisions and quote unquote trying to receive the the adequate amount of funding. I've seen and and heard about clients laying a huge toll on their mental health. As as honestly for anyone who's, you know, might be chucked out of their home, that would take a play a big big part on your your health as that's your livelihood and the possibility of you being kicked out or the possibility of you not being able to get through your front door because you don't have adequate funding to get automotive doors. I think for anyone, that's that's a really scary reality. Have you experienced anyone that's been, been kicked, like had something well, similar to that happen? Well, in a SIL, I know of a client during the COVID period mm-hmm. and uh, that, that had an unfortunate experience with some protocols and he he was he was kicked out of his his sill as 
as they were concerned about reper- like repercussions of the the virus spreading, he was kicked out of his home. So other participants. Yes. Yeah, that's kind of that's quite. Well, yeah, you can come back to you if you like. All right, Levi. So as as for anyone, I think going through a court case, it's it's stressful. There's a lot of anticipation on whether it's going to happen, whether it's not going to happen, and I think with you know, government systems like the STA, uh, it, these sorts of processes don't just take a couple of weeks, they take years for some people. Um, and in my experience, I've seen people go through the, the, the process and it's it's taxing because, you know, you, you have these things that you should be entitled to as a human being, just simply having a roof over your head, being able to experience all the things that anyone else should be able to experience. But for people applying for SDA, they're in situations that are a lot more difficult than for some other people. And to be able to simply not leave your house because you don't have the correct funding or be able to live in your own space because you're, you're not independent enough, then I think it's a bit unfair that, um, you know, that these, these processes happen. And I think that for a lot of people that this process can be really daunting and really, really hard for them to deal with. And it, and it, it takes a massive toll on our support workers as well because we're often having to, you know, can, to be there with the person and to make them feel more confident through a situation that could be quite stressful and, and that can then in turn affect us as well. That's the big question, isn't it? Because a lot of participants, you know, they end up giving up because they can't afford the lawyer or the barrister for anything. Now that we've talked about the AAT, I want to talk about something else that's currently happening within the NDIS space at the moment, and that's the NDIS review that's currently happening of the whole entire scheme. Now, what we know as the independent support workers currently, anyone can go and get an ABN and become an independent support worker without any qualification uh, whatsoever. All they need is their ABN number. They don't even need a, a first aid certificate or, or, or anything like that. They don't technically need that. Is at the request of the participant. Where would you guys like to see the independent support worker market in the future? Or what would you like to see come from the current review status? One of the really big problems is if what no regulation makes no sense at all. Having not even needing a first aid certificate is absolutely ridiculous. Ridiculous. How are you meant to look after someone? Like, we need to have some qualification, some certification, something. There needs to be something that makes so you can actually say, yes, you're able to look after someone. Because at the moment, just it's out of control. The number of people who have no qualifications, no, no proper checks done, nothing like that, and uh, getting into support work. Looking after vulnerable people, it's just outrageous, really. Liam? I think a prerequisite, I think it goes without saying that you that you should have a first aid and CPR course that is that is valid training as as you're working with people with a lot of un- underlining potential underlining health conditions that absolute seconds are integral to to people's health. And if you and if you don't act fast or you don't act smart and have the knowledge and you're not equipped with that knowledge, then it, it could potentially mean the difference between someone being alive and being dead. And also, I think that like with working with vulnerable people, I think that it, it should go without saying as well that there should be some background checks or police checks performed on, on these independent support workers 
before they start working with vulnerable people because you know as we know people there there is good people out of this world and there is you know some some bad people and you know in every single industry that you're going to get you know lots of good people and unfortunately you're going to get some bad people and if you're and if and if those people do make their way into the industry there's possibilities that that bad things can happen move on yeah i agree with that i think in this type of industry without any prerequisites and, and things like that it is easier for bad people to slip through the cracks because there's no application process you kind of just meet a client you could put on a, on a face and and be whoever you want to be really and i think that there should be some sort of determinated factor of whether it's a diploma or something that you have to do online but something something put in place that can suggest that you're capable of doing this kind of work because it's, it's really not easy and i find a lot of the times in my experience that we're almost essentially nurses with you know medicating and doing voice transfers and you've got quite a lot of responsibility you know if you're a one-on-one especially that you're the only person there to take care of that person. If something goes wrong and you're not qualified, that, that could be a really detriment. I, I guess you guys are lucky in the sense that you bought, you all came from a service provider previously, so you had the training and the experience that you needed. But things, as we know, policies change and, and situations change over time. And you guys, you know, you wouldn't, would you have had a refresher training in your meds training or like your peg training or stuff like that in the last, you know, however long you've been an independent support worker? Yes, you've gone out and you've done the CPR and the first aid updates every 12 months. But other than that, your other training hasn't really been updated since since that has it so well thank you Brendan, for for that and yes that is true i've actually done uh, first aid and cpr well as well as going online and doing the ndis safeguard courses how as well as through my teaching every year there is courses that we can apply for and and do and that touch on how to how to manage people and best look after people with disabilities so i guess i guess once again, it goes hand in hand being a teacher and support worker that I've that I'm very grateful that I've got the opportunity to do these courses and and branch out my my skill set. But so what you're saying is it is effectively up to the individual independent support worker then to go and source those training programs and spend time updating their skills. One, so one of the problems is it's hard to find like good person who's going to be able to provide that mm. training there's there's not a lot of uh, yeah. rules or restrictions on what is required for that training and, and you're probably seeing that support workers like in the facebook group pages like they recommend places but a lot of independent support workers aren't really acknowledged about this space and that comes down to i guess a lack of companies training independent support workers there's no real outlet there for those sorts of things to happen i guess another thing that we're seeing too is the ndia have introduced the national disability insurance screening card and a lot of independent support workers are having to wait 12 months for their cards to be approved i i honestly think that that's shocking in itself and 
the organisation, which is the Safeguards Commission, that's in charge of, you know, dealing with that, I think they need better systems put in place so independent support workers can get their screening checks a lot quicker and a lot easier. Just make it more simpler for the independent support worker. I could add... I could add to that a little bit. The current process is not set up at all for independent support workers. It's where the, those cards are set up for a big company to approve you, get you, say you're added to the thing, added to their little system, and they tick it and it's good. But for independent, it, it, the system doesn't really work well because you have to add yourself as a provider and then approve your own yeah. card. It's just really overcomplicated and nonsensical. Well, guys, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on my podcast today. Um, I want to thank you all for giving your time and sharing your knowledge and experiences. And I really appreciate your value and input. And I wish you all the best with whatever it is you choose to do further on in your support working positions. It's been an absolute pleasure. So, guys, thank you so much, and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Brandon. Same to you. It's all good. Don't worry. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please make sure you are subscribed and following us so you can keep in the loop with all of our upcoming episodes. We would really appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star rating, a written review, and just share this podcast with those that could benefit. Until next time, catch you on the next episode.